We're going to conclude our whole study with Matthew now, with Matthew 28. And this, of course, is the message of the resurrection of the Lord, and it's a wonderful chapter, wonderful ideas here. So let's, as usual, start with a, with a prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you rejoicing that your dear Son rose from the dead, and we pray that we might understand and that we might be motivated by his resurrection, and that we might realize that having been baptized into him, the life that he lives, and the resurrection life that he has experienced, breaks through into our mortal flesh, even in this life. And we pray for the day when he shall be back, and at last the power of his resurrection shall be realized in each of us. So please help us to be inspired, in his name and for his sake. Amen. So, in the end of the Sabbath, Matthew 28, verse 1, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, well, this is very much the, the language of new creation, the dawning towards the first day of this, this new week, and the end of the Sabbath, the end, I would say, of the, uh, of the need to keep the Sabbath, the, the Jewish system, etc., there is this great earthquake, and this is the second big earthquake that there had been in Jerusalem in three days, because there was an earthquake, a great earthquake, uh, when, when the Lord died. Now, a great earthquake, this is the very same phrase that we read a number of times in latter-day prophecies in Revelation, that there shall be this great earthquake of the Lord's return, and you've got it again in Matthew 24, and the Olivet Prophecy, verse 7, and there's a lot of other language about the second coming, which seems to be used here in this record of the Lord's resurrection. I mean, the angel descends from heaven, uh, verse 2. And of course, angels will come with the Lord Jesus when he returns at the second coming. He won't come alone, as it were. Uh, lightning, looking like lightning, glistering, white clothing, fear and great joy... This is all the language, really, of the second coming, and why is that? And I think the point is that his resurrection, as the later New Testament makes clear, his resurrection is ours. <clears throat> this is why we cannot read this account merely as spectators at a scene, uh, looking at, at him from afar. <clears throat> we are involved with this exactly because his resurrection is ours. This is what we signed up to at baptism, and this is what shall finally come true. Now, of course, in essence, as we said in our opening prayer, this is what's happening in this life. Because into our mortal flesh, Paul says in Corinthians, <clears throat> his resurrection life is made known. So then, <clears throat> just on a human level, there had been this great earthquake, and these women continue on their journey to the tomb. Despite the great earthquake, now earthquakes frighten people today, and they frighten people even more, I believe, in first century Palestine, because there was this sense that here are supernatural powers that are angry with us. The earth is angry. <coughs> and so the, uh, the, the fact that women continue to the tomb is, I think, a great uh, window onto their simple love of their Lord and their pure devotion to him, as a person. On the way there, they had worried, Mark says, about how on earth they were going to roll the stone away. And again, you take a little lesson there that you can worry about things. When you get there, you find it's, it's already been resolved. Now, women unable to roll a stone away 
and then a powerful man coming and rolling it away for them. This is, of course, the language of Genesis 29 about Rachel and her girls who were unable to roll, to roll the stone away from the well until Jacob came. And I think that the similarity uh, in the wording of the whole thing here would have been picked up by those who had grown up uh, listening to the Bible stories of the Old Testament as their staple education. They would have picked this up, I think. The implication, of course, is that the open tomb is in fact a well, that there is life-giving water now coming out to, to others. <clears throat> and, of course, John puts that, or records the Lord saying that, in more spiritual kind of terms during his life, that because of his piercing, he would become a spring of, a well of living water to all those that believe in him. Well, this angel, verse 3, his appearance was as lightning and his garment white as snow. That's exactly the words used about Jesus himself at the, tra <clears throat> at the transfiguration and later about the Lord Jesus personally in the book of Revelation. And I think the similarities were intentional. They hadn't seen Jesus because at that time it was his plan to personally reveal himself to them in Galilee, but this angel, perhaps the representative angel of Jesus, the angel Gabriel, looked so much like Jesus. It was really saying to them, look, he's risen, and this angel looks incredibly like him. But you'll see he himself in, in Galilee. Don't be fearful, the angel said to them, and the contrast is with verse 4, for fear of him the keepers did shake and had become as dead men. They were literally paralyzed. And the angel says to the women, now you don't have to fear like they fear, because I know that you seek Jesus, the one who was crucified. One of the themes of the resurrection record is their slowness to believe it and their disobedience, actually, to what both the angel and Jesus asked them to do. And I think that theme climaxes when the Lord gives them the Great Commission to take this message into the whole world. And as we know, the, the Christian community were very slow to do that. They seem to have the idea that, no, no, what that means is take it to Jewish people in various parts of the world. And as soon as a Gentile got baptized, there was all kind of opposition to it. And we as the body of Christ have been likewise terribly slow to do this job, to take this good news in obedience to what we've been asked to do. All sorts of theological excuses why we shouldn't do it, and all sorts of practical reasons. What if they're not sincere? We don't speak their language, blah, blah. How should we follow it up? And yet, this is a theme that comes out of the records. You come back to this question, well, who, who wrote the Gospels? What are the Gospel records? The Gospel according to Matthew is a transcript of the Gospel which Matthew normally preached. And so what all the accounts are saying is, look, we who are teaching you this message, we were so terribly slow ourselves to understand this and to believe it. We were awfully slow. Now you, come on, you believe it more quickly than we did. Learn from our slowness and our mistake. And it is that humility in witness which I think was the, the basis for their success. And unless we are going to have that, witnessing personally to people on the basis of our own terrible slowness to believe and understand and so forth, then I don't think that 
we will be successful. It is that humility, that fallibility of the messenger, which actually is so credible. Or the idea that you've got to have every answer at your fingertip and a perfect life, or at least, you know, show the perfect life uh, externally. All this is nonsense. This it turns people away, actually. It puts a barrier up. And the way the disciples are teaching the gospel here continually on about their own weakness. Uh, and, you know, this is a major theme of the gospels, uh, the, the, the failure of the disciples. This was part of their message. And it was part of their appeal to men and women to believe. Another theme of the gospel records of the, uh, of the resurrection is the way that so much righteousness was imputed to the disciples who at least loved Jesus. I know that you seek Jesus, the angel said. And of course, he's not here. He's risen. Come to the wrong place. You're looking for the, uh, the living amongst the dead, as Luke 24 puts it. You've come to a graveyard to look for a living man. You just come to the wrong place. Well, they hadn't really come to see Jesus. They had come to anoint the Lord's dead body with no expectation that he would have risen from the dead the third day as he had repeatedly told them. They were slow of heart to believe that as the Lord later rebuked them. And yet, the angel sort of generously counts to them, I know, I perceive, I accept, I count that you are looking for Jesus. Now, they don't, the angel doesn't rebuke the obvious error, that look here, you've come looking for a dead man when you should be expecting a risen man. You should be expecting to meet him. And why aren't you? You just come looking for a dead body. But in grace, that is not uh, mentioned. Instead, they're, they're commended for seeking now, John's record <clears throat> um, opens, John's Gospel opens, with the Lord inquiring of his followers, whom do you seek? And John sort of ends his Gospel, really, in the resurrection account, with the, the Lord saying the same thing to Mary. Who are you looking for? And I think we, we're left then with this question of the identity of Jesus, in John's account anyway, uh, the, the question is, who are you looking for in Christ? And we have to answer that question, because for many years, I and I believe many of us, were looking for an understanding of Jesus which was simply the correct interpretation of Bible text, of black print on white paper. And that's not wrong in itself. <clears throat> that is a fair basis for, for relationship with him. But who are we seeking in our lives Ultimately, who are you seeking? A relationship with a living person. And, you know, you can be baptized, you, you can know all truth, as it were, in theory, and yet still not get it, that he is actually a living person. You can actually feel love towards him and devotion, as these women did. But it was all to a dead body. And there was no idea that he's actually alive and seeking a relationship with you. Then verse 6, the angel says, come, see the place where the Lord lay. Well, whether they did that or not, I don't know. There's two possibilities. One is that the angel says, hey, come and see the place where the Lord lay, but the women don't. It's not recorded here in Matthew that they did. They were disobedient, in other words. Who wants to go inside a, a tomb with two guys, two, you know, the Roman soldiers rather lying dead, 
uh, looking dead, uh, the word corpse is used about them, lying there on the, on the ground outside, and this angel saying, hey, go, go inside, go inside into the darkness. Um, that's one option. The other option is to put this together with Luke's record, which says that they arrived at the tomb, they went in, found that the body was missing, got all upset, panicked, and, um, well, sort of went back to Jerusalem and said, oh, you know what, the body's missing. We go to the tomb, and you know what, there's no body in it. Someone's nicked the body. Now, I personally go for that second option. But again, that doesn't say much for them, does it? There's an angel, for goodness sake, standing there with, you know, lightning, uh, appearances, lightning, and, and glistering white uh, raiment. And, and the angel says, look, he's risen. Look, the stone, this huge stone is rolled back. The, the Roman guards are lying here, dead men. He's not here. Go and look. And they go in and they look. And they, oh, oh, there's no body. Oh, no, we came here to anoint the body. We can't. What are we going to do with all our spices? He's gone. The body's not here. Where's the body? And you say, hello, guys. <laughs> like, he's risen. That's why there's no body there. He's alive. And all they can do is get phased because their little pet idea that I am serving Jesus by going to his dead body and anointing him. Uh, oh, no. Their little worldview suddenly crashed. The body's not there. There's no corpse there. Well, we, we thought we were going to come and anoint him. And there's no body. Where's the body? John puts it from Mary Magdalene's perspective, where you know she gets all distressed about this with the, with the guy she thinks is the gardener. It turns out to be Jesus. Where is the corpse? And we can be like that in our devotion to the Lord Jesus as well, that we have some tram lines of thinking, that my service to God, my understanding is this way. And when it turns out that there's actually no body in the tomb, when it turns out that our favorite little idea of how I am to serve him, suddenly, no, you can't. You can't do that. God's got another game plan. It can be very distressing. And even with all the evidence in the world to support you in the way that you should go, you can still not go there or half go. And this is, I think, uh, how I put the record of Matthew and Luke together that, uh, yeah, they did go in and see where the, the Lord lay, and they freaked out. Oh, there's no body. Oh, no, no, no. And, yeah, this is why we're going to read later in Matthew 28, that the Lord appeared to them in Galilee. John 21 says this was now the third time that he appeared to them after he rose from the dead, and some doubted. For goodness sake, guys, third time. This is the Jesus who passed through a, through a wall into a locked room. He had appeared to them, they touched him, he'd spoken to them. I still doubt it, even the third time that he appeared to them. Their slowness to believe is incredible. No wonder he upbraids them, uh, as the other record says, for their slowness and hardness of heart, really and truly, to actually believe in the risen Lord. Well, they're told to go quickly and tell his disciples that he goes ahead of you into Galilee, verse 7. Well, they did go quickly, uh, because they were frightened, uh, and they went, verse 8, with fear and great joy. Um, but you've got a factor in Mark 16, 7 and 8, which says this, that uh, they fled in fear, and they went running out of the, uh, the tomb, trembling and astonishment came upon them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. 
So they were told to go and tell the disciples, and they go running away, not telling anybody anything. Too scared to talk. So you see, their obedience to the, the Great Commission, to go and tell people the good news of the resurrection, started off with them saying, no, I don't want to do it, I can't, I'm not going to do it. You know, it took a process of time for the joy, I think, to become bigger than the fear. And the final commission at the end of this chapter, to go into the whole world and tell the message to everybody, this is a continuation of a theme that you get throughout the resurrection accounts. Go and tell somebody. Go and tell the disciples. Go and tell Peter. Go tell my brethren. Go and tell others. And then at the end it comes to its full term. Now, go into the whole world and tell everybody. And yet, as we know, the body of Christ were terribly slow to fulfill that. They didn't initially do so. They thought it was just for the Jews. And got all cranky when the Gentiles responded. Uh, and we as the body of Christ have been incredibly slow to, to breathe any word of this good news to the world. Uh, compared to what our potential has been and what could have been. Um, and I think you see it sort of reflected in the way these women initially, Mark 16, they go out and don't tell anyone. They're not obedient to the commission that the angel's given them, and then later they are. Well, go and tell my disciples that he goes ahead of you into Galilee. There you shall see him. Because the obvious question, the obvious question which they had to the angel was, okay, Mr. Angel, where is his body? Where is he? Understand you're an angel, so forth, but where is he? We come to see him. Where is he? That's the obvious question. And he says, look, he's going ahead of you into Galilee, which is what he told you before uh, he died. There you shall see him. Now you go to Galilee, like he said, and there you'll see him. Well, yes, that is, uh, that was what was planned. But straight away after this, as they went to verse 9 to tell his disciples, Jesus met them. Well, how, how do I understand this? The, the plan A was, as he had said before his death, and as the angel now after the resurrection reiterates, the plan was to meet up in Galilee. There you will actually see him. And then I go off to tell the disciples, bang, there's Jesus. And he tells them, verse 10, Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. So it's as if the Lord is saying, well, okay, so the plan was I would meet the disciples plus you women in Galilee. Okay, well, I just changed that. I'm appearing to you now. Um, okay, but the plan is still in place about the male disciples. You go and tell them, the eleven, to go into Galilee, and there they will see me. And that also is not what happened. Because the Lord appeared to them in Jerusalem before appearing in Galilee. He did meet them in Galilee, John 21. But John 21 says, this is now the third time that the Lord had appeared to the eleven. So, the first two times were in, uh, in, in Jerusalem. So, what are we to make of this? There was a change of plan. 
And there's no problem with, with a divine natured being having a change of plan. I mean, God had plenty of them. He said to Moses, I'm going to destroy Israel and make of you a greater nation. A great nation. No, no, don't do that. All right, I won't. Uh, Forty days, Nineveh shall be destroyed. No condition, no precondition, etc. It wasn't. They repented. Okay, God rethought the plan. So God is not then like the classical God of the Greeks who is God because he doesn't change. There's only one uh, aspect in which God doesn't change. As Malachi says, I am Yahweh and I change not. Therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. In other words, his grace to Israel, that is the unchangeable factor. You can be sure of that, that God will not present himself as a God of love and then turn another face and say, you know what, guys, I wasn't like that at all. No, that shall not happen. His grace to Israel remains, and was. Uh, but that does not mean that in the working out of his various game plans with, with humanity, that he cannot change. He is open to change. That's the meaning of prayer. That's the power of prayer. Not just the power of prayer, but the power of dialogue with God. That he is open to change. And this is the same with the Lord Jesus. There was this great plan about meeting in Galilee, and he changed it. And he changed it. Now, why did he do that? Well, on a purely simple level, you could say he was so excited to be alive that he's like, oh, I, I can't continue this game plan any longer. I want to see you. And so he appears to them. That, that works for me, because... God and Jesus, angels, etc., the fact they have divine nature, as we would say, does not mean that they are incapable of emotion, nor incapable of the change, which, of changes, which emotion and feeling, and in a word, love, bring with it. You know, love is not the same as a sort of stone-faced, unchangeable uh, purpose that you have, and you're not going to change to the right nor to the left. Love ain't like that, is it? You're open to change. So it could simply be because of that. But I suspect also, and maybe more to the point, the Lord recognized that their faith is not that strong. If I don't appear to them pretty quick, I reckon they're going to lose it. They're going to lose their faith altogether. And even though the third time he appears to them in Galilee, some doubt it. We're going to read later in this chapter, some doubt it. And even then when you read John 21, Peter says, guys, he doesn't say that, but you know, he says, guys, I'm, I'm going fishing. And they say, yeah, all right, we'll come with you. And the idea, I think, is let's quit this. This thing's too weird. Let's go back to the business that we left three and a half years ago and see what we can piece together. Let's go fishing. Let's go back to the, to the job. Let's pick our careers up and try and put it all back together again. So their faith was not that great, uh, uh, even on the third time. And so I think that the Lord perceives that no, they're not going to go into Galilee. They just, they're just not that switched on. They just don't get it. And so he makes this change of plan. He appears, first of all, to the women and says, Okay, you know, like scribble the Galilee plan, here I am right in front of you. Uh, but the plan is still going to work for the, uh, the 11 disciples, just you go tell them, and then we'll meet up in Galilee. But then he changes that as well. Now, in Matthew 26, 
verses 31 and 32, he has predicted this when he says, uh, he quotes the prophecy, I'll smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But after I am raised up, I will go ahead of you, I will go before you into Galilee. Now when he says, I will go before you into Galilee, that is continuing the sheep and the shepherd illusion. I'm the shepherd. When I'm smitten, you as the flock of sheep will be scattered, but I will go before you into Galilee. And this is very much the language of John 10, where the Lord says that I am the shepherd, not as the Arab shepherds who set their dogs on the back of the flock and push them from behind, but I go in front of my sheep, and I lead my sheep by my word. I call them by their name, and they, they come to me, and I go ahead of them. So this illusion is still in place. I'll smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered, but after I am risen from the dead, I will go before you as a shepherd goes before his sheep into Galilee. In other words, my going into Galilee and you as the little sheep following behind me into Galilee will be in response to my word. You will do that because I as the shepherd will call you by name, by my word, by my call, and you shall come after me. But I think the Lord realized, no, you're not that obedient, are you? I better appear to you right away. So you see then how really uh, their faith and understanding was so weak. It really was quite pathetic. And this is a comfort, it's not a justification of our weakness of faith, but it is a comfort, we can say. Now, they departed quickly, as we said in verse 8. And another theme that comes through the resurrection accounts is urgency. There is this great urgency. Go quickly. Uh, partly, you know, if you've got good news, then you want to tell it quickly. And I also wonder if the quickness, the speed, go quickly and tell the disciples, uh, was because he realized that every minute that went past, their faith potentially was getting weaker. And he's concerned about that, and he tells the women to go quickly, therefore, and tell them. Now, <clears throat> why were they so fearful? They departed with fear and great joy, and the fear was so great, Mark 16 says initially, that they decided not to tell anyone. They decided to be disobedient. What was their fear about? Why the emotion of fear? I think subconsciously because they were aware that they were not believing as they should. That their faith was not that strong. And they feared that. They feared their own sense of unworthiness and, and inadequacy. And that, of course, is what I think holds us back from being able to tell the good news freely to others as we should. And yet, as I said earlier, they departed with fear and great joy, first of all, so fearful that they decided we shall not tell anyone anything. But in other words, the joy aspect got bigger, and eventually they did tell the disciples. And that struggle is within each of us. On one hand, the fear of our inadequacy, sin, failure, personal lack of faith, missed chances, and so forth. And on the other hand, the joy that he is risen, and that not just that he is risen, but that I who am in him have found in him my life and my resurrection. 
So go quickly, tell his disciples, and they departed quickly, and did run to bring his disciples' word. Uh, Mary, in the other account, she likewise ran to bring the disciples' word. The two on the way to Emmaus, they run back to Jerusalem to tell the others that they have seen the risen Lord. And so then the idea of running in response to God's word, this continues in the New Testament. When Paul talks in Galatians and Corinthians and Philippians about running, he uses that metaphor in the context of spreading the gospel. And it's based, I think, in Daniel 12, verse 2. Um, Many shall run to and fro. It's all talking about increased communication. Uh, the, the idea is that in the last days, the message uh, will be preached to the world. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 1, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly. This metaphor of running is connected with the spreading of God's word. The idea is that there is an urgency about it. And we should reflect that. You know, if somebody shows a bit of interest in the gospel... Yeah, so it sends you an email, or someone sends you an email about uh, some interesting contact or something, and they don't put it off for a couple of days or a week or a month. Respond straight away. You know, if you're a salesman or woman, that, that's what you will do, is it not? Oh, here's a bite. Here's someone showing off a bit of interest. Right, let's get on to them. Let's phone them up. Let's hassle them. You know, get the order. And how much more so with the good news of Christ? And if we're not like that, I mean, is it really good news for us? Do we sense that sense of urgency? Now, when you come to the Acts of the Apostles, you see that sense of urgency because the, the pace of the narrative is so quick and the baptisms are so quick. It's urgent. You must do this. Middle of the night in Philippi, there's an earthquake and the, the jailer, who's been suicidal one minute, is under the water of baptism in the middle of the night a couple of hours later. Now, there was an urgency. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, well, you know, you've got to join the club and you've got to go through this, go through that. No, that would be appropriate if baptism was a sign of membership of a club. But it's not, of course. It's into Christ. And that same spirit of urgency should be in us, in our sharing of this good news with our Lord's. Well, as, uh, as I said... <clears throat> Jesus met them. Instead of meeting them in Galilee, as the angel has just told them, he met them, verse 9, uh, in person. And he says, greetings, and it's Greek word charis, which really literally means rejoice. He says to them, rejoice. And I think he's almost trying to force the fulfillment of what he had said in John 16, 22. You're sad now, but I will see you again. And your heart shall rejoice. There's actually the same word, Greek word translated rejoice, as is translated here, greetings, or be joyful. But again, they still feared. The angel had told them, don't fear, and he has to repeat it to them. Verse 10, fear not. So again, we get this impression of disobedience, of lack of faith. The angel has said, don't fear, but they still fear. And Jesus appears to them and says, stop fearing. Rejoice. You're supposed to be happy that you've seen me, that I'm alive. While he says, go tell my brothers. Now that's quoting from Psalm 22, verse 23 in the Septuagint, which is clearly talking about the, uh, the sufferings of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. Where 
we read of Jesus, I will tell your name to my brothers. And that is actually quoted in Hebrews 2 verse 12. I will declare your name unto my brethren. But now he sort of hijacks that and turns it around and says, now you go tell my brothers. So he's using uh, an Old Testament passage that is applied in Hebrews 2.12 to himself, that I am going to go and tell my brothers after my resurrection. And he says, now you do it. In other words, you are to be me. And that is the basis of our witness, that we are him to this world. And Mother Teresa had it right when she said that, you know, he has no other hands or face or feet, or fingers in this world apart from us. You know, people don't read the Bible, do they? They have not seen him until they meet you and me. We are him to this world. And that is the whole basis that he's risen from the dead. The obvious question is, where's the body? If you tell me he's risen from the dead, where is he? And the answer to that is, where's the body? I'm standing right in front of you, mate. Me. The body of Christ. My, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Because that's how it really had to be. Because looking at it really with, with all the persecution and suffering there was for accepting Christ in the first century, why was Christianity so popular? Why was it that men could stand up in a marketplace in, in say, Asia somewhere, in, in what is now Turkey or whatever, or Greece, uh, and say, guys, there was this uh, man who was a Jew. Oh, yeah, we don't really like Jews. Yeah, anyway, there was this man who was a Jew, and he was born in Palestine, and his mother was a bit of a nobody, just a teenager, and she got uh, barefoot and pregnant by God. Yep, she didn't have uh, any sex with a man, but she got pregnant. And you know what? This person was the only person who is the begotten son of God. As if. Yeah, anyway, so anyway, he didn't sin. Yeah, so what? Big deal. Sin didn't, wasn't a big concept in the first century. Yeah, anyway, and he was uh, crucified. Yuck. Ugh. He died the death of a slave, did he? Okay, so he was like an enemy of the state. Okay. Yeah, anyway, so he was crucified. And then after three days, he rose from the dead. Really? And where is he? Where's his body? Well, okay, I'm coming to that. Um, now, what you've got to do, you've got to go underwater and be baptized into him, his death and resurrection. And he's actually now in heaven. Okay? And he there in heaven will forgive you all your sins. And you're going to be really persecuted. You're going to have to break with your family, your religion, with the cult of the emperor. You're going to get beat up by the Roman Empire. Uh, but one day he shall come back. After you're dead and gone, maybe in this life, maybe not. And you'll be resurrected and live forever in his kingdom on earth. Look, I mean, this message, and bearing in mind that there was nothing much to back it up in sort of visible terms, no written New Testament. Um, this message as message didn't stand much of a chance, quite frankly. Why would men and women queue up to get baptized and, and suffer, even give their lives, for this invisible man? The obvious question that I would have had that everybody surely had was, well, okay, I hear ya. Where is he? Can I talk to him? What does he look like? Can I, you know, where is the body? You say the tomb back there in Israel and Palestine was empty, you know, a cave just outside Jerusalem. You know, right? where is he? Where can I go? Where can I go talk to him? I want to see him. And that was the 
either the expressed or the, the, the subconsciously unexpressed question. Where is he? I want to talk to him, I want to see him, I want to see what sort of person he is. And the answer to that question was there. The answer was not, yeah, well, you just got to take what I say on faith. The answer, again, unexpressed, was, he's here right in front of you. It's me, I'm talking to you. And it's his body, where's his body? In the church, in the Christian community. That is what really convicted people, because they had no written record, and they were not literate, most people, in the first century. Literacy rates were, well, 10% of the most, and in Palestine itself, as low as 2%. And so it wasn't a, a, an intellectual question. It was a, a question of being persuaded by other individuals. That's what it was all about. Well, in essence, it's still what it's about today. And so the Lord is saying to these women, go tell my brothers. He's quoting a prophecy about himself, declaring the Father's name after his resurrection to his brothers. And he says, you go and do this. Now, we are him, therefore, in this world. And that is positive and negative. It, it, it encourages us that we are not alone. You know, I am with you in the Great Commission, as he says, unto the end of the age. And it also is, of course, a warning about our behavior. Because what people see in us is what they see of Jesus. And we are his advertisement to this world. Now, he seems to emphasize the fact, go tell my brothers. He seems to emphasize that, look here, although I'm risen from the dead and I've got God's nature, I don't want that to be a barrier between you and me. I don't want you to think that I'm somehow untouchable. That's why again in John 20, when Mary is grabbing onto his feet because she's frightened he's going to disappear, he says, no, no, yeah, don't, don't worry, but go and tell my brethren that I'm ascending, not now, but I will ascend, to my Father who's your Father, to my God who's your God. It's not just a classic proof that the Trinity is bunk, it is that, uh, but the fact that he talks about my Father who is your father, my God, who is your God. Uh, this is really emphasizing, look, I am with you. And in that incident, when he appears to them on the lake, when they're on the lake in Galilee, he shouts out from the shore. The AV says, children, do you have any, any food? Meat. Well, it's a Greek word, paidos, and you read all the expositors and all that, and they all, you know, fiddling around with this word because they can't really translate it. And they're uncomfortable and awkward with it because it seems to be the wrong word. Because effectively, it's kind of slangy. Literally, the, the, the true translation for that word would be guys. Guys. Do you have anything to eat? Now, why, this is the question that these clever expositors and the Greek experts don't really put to themselves, why would the risen Son of God, the Lord of heaven and earth, be recorded as purposefully using a slangy kind of word? Not a bad word, just a kind of street word, you know? Guys, fellas, why? Well... Because he wants to emphasize to them that, look here, although I have risen from the dead, I am still in that sense 
one of you. I'm still united with you. This is why 1 Timothy 2 verse 5 we have uh, a mediator, one God, one Lord, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And Paul is writing after the Lord's resurrection and ascension to heaven. This is not to say that he is a man as, as I'm a man, with human nature. No. But his identity with us, despite his resurrection, is to such a, a point that, that he wants to really emphasize this. Now, notice also that he's using women to witness to men. My brothers, the 11 male disciples. Well, women had no, uh, no value as witnesses in the ancient world. Uh, Josephus makes this point, uh, and uh, Joachim Jeremias and all his uh, research, uh, a woman had no right to bear witness. Uh, Josephus in Antiquities of the Jews, let not the testimony of women be admitted because of the levity and boldness of their sex. Sort of read that two ways, couldn't you? Uh, let not the testimony of women be admitted because of the levity and boldness of their sex. I presume the sex, he, the translator means of their gender. Um, anyway, if my levity uh, distract us. My, my point is that these were the most unlikely of witnesses. They had no real legal value as witnesses, and yet it was the women who were chosen. And I think the, the point is that it is exactly those who appear to be the last person that you would choose to be your representative whom the Lord chooses. And we all think, but who am I? Even the most confident and uh, extrovert of us would, I think, have that deep question. But not me. I'm not the guy for this. And time and again, God, God works in this way. That's just the way he likes to work. Well, verse 12. When the, uh, the, the, the Jews uh, were told by the, the soldiers what had happened, and incidentally you've got a sort of a duality here, you've got the soldiers sort of waking up from being dead and running back into the city and, and telling the people in the city that, oh, you know, basically Jesus is resurrected and an angel came. Um, and you've got the women running back with the same message. The question was, what was done about it? And so the Jews come up with this uh, silly idea. They take counsel together, verse 12, and decide to give large money to the soldiers. Well, they took counsel so many times in the record in Matthew. This is emphasized of every step through the trials, through their consultations about how to kill Jesus, their consultation about what to do about Judas and the money and the treasury and so forth. At every point, the Jews are synagoguing is the word. They gather together, assemble together. They synagogued. They got together and took their decision. And I suggested it's really because John 12, 42 says, amongst the Jewish elders, many believed on him. Well, we know Joseph and Nicodemus did for sure, but many others did. And I think the incredible, unbelievable thing really is that that bunch of people who, who did him to death, who spat in his face, who abused him, who twisted everything against him, who committed the, the crime of the cosmos, 
who did the worst possible thing that has ever been done at any point in infinite time and infinite space, that is to, to destroy willfully the Son of God. <laughs> the, the almost unbelievable thing is that a whole bunch of them in their heart of hearts didn't even believe it. They believed that he, he was right. Now, you, you may say, no, no, there must be some other explanation. No, uh, when I first uh, sort of give John 12, 42, and there's other passages like that that talk of, or hint at uh, their belief, their belief of many of them, I started to give those passages their full weight. I thought, well, yeah, there must be some other explanation. And then it really dawned on me really quite clearly that, no, no, this is all psychologically sort of true to, to experience, that groupthink is so powerful, that when you gather together, you can do something that is far beyond what you personally believe. That's why that has been the observation, uh, especially in context of trying to make sense of the Shalach uh, of the, the, the Holocaust, that the, the sum total of human evil is actually greater, uh, is actually not as much uh, as the actual evil that is in the world and was committed. In other words, let's take the Holocaust. Right, if you get together all the people who were responsible for that and add together all their individual evil, you still don't, you still don't get to the total evil that there was. In other words, man in, in, sort of in assembly actually gets a life of his own. Just like a factory or a company or an organization can actually become bigger than the actual sum total of all the individual people who work there or work for the company. There's uh, Arthur Kersler, the, the ghost in the machine. This is why the word Satan is used, or the devil, is used about organizations and world systems as well as about individuals and individual human sin. And I think this is what happened. Uh, the, the crucifixion of Jesus is the classic example. The, the cosmos is the most tragic case of this. That when they took counsel, when they came together, the sum total of their uh, evil, of their decision making, was actually somehow far beyond the, uh, sorry, the, uh, the actual evil that they did was actually far beyond the sum total of the individual evil of every individual person that was involved. And of course that works positively as well. That's why um, in, uh, in spiritual terms you meet together in Ecclesia. This is the whole point of spiritual fellowship together. Because the sum total of all the good that we might do is not as great as the the, the overall movement of the body of Christ when in assembly. Well, they got together and they... It's interesting that they didn't try to uh, discount what the soldiers said. They did not turn around and say, uh, well, actually, no, nah, they got it wrong. Yeah, look, here's a body. Yeah, no, we got the body of Jesus. Come and look at it. They didn't fake a corpse. That's what I think I might have expected them to do. Uh, no, they didn't try anything like that. They just told the, told the soldiers to lie, and they gave money to them. They repeated the mistake they made with Judas. They paid Judas off, and that didn't work uh, at all in the end. And, of course, they came out with this stupid lie. 
that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. Well, if they were sleeping, you know, how would they know what happened to the body? How would they know it was stolen if they were sleeping? How would they know that the thieves were the disciples? They were asleep. Yeah? Um, it's just a quickly thought up story that had to be repeated. Well, they did as they were taught, verse 15 says, did as they were told, a lot of Bibles say, but that is the Greek word didasko, which definitely means not to tell, but to teach. And it's the uh, very same word that you've got uh, later on in the, uh, in the Great Commission, that they are to go and teach. Verse 20, didasko, again. So I, I, I think the point is that these people, these soldiers, were, uh, as it were, um, again, a parallel to the uh, spreading of the true gospel. They uh, did as they were taught, and the story was spread around throughout the Jewish world, it says. This was a kind of, you know, another... Uh, reflection of the uh, the Great Commission. Well, the eleven disciples, verse 16, went into Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And again, that continues the theme of the disciples' faith being sort of counted to them for righteousness. Because John 21 really gives the impression that Peter says to them, guys, let's go fishing. Let's go back to our fishing business. And they say, sure, we come with you. So I am not sure that really they went into Galilee in uh, obedience to the Lord's word. In Matthew 26, when he says, smite the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered, but I will go before you as a shepherd goes before his sheep into Galilee, and there you will see me. And he obviously had defined a hill or a mountain, as the AV says, a hill where they were to go and they were to meet. Well, it says here that they did that. Well, yes, they did go to Galilee. But as I say, I don't think that their motivation was, was that strong. It was more going back to their fishing. Despite the Lord having twice already appeared to them in Jerusalem. So again, you see that the very positive spirit of the record, and of course that reflects God's positive view of us and the Lord's positive view of us, and how we likewise should have that positive view of others. So when they saw him in Galilee, verse 17, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I mean, this is incredible. As we said, John 21, this was now the third time the Lord had appeared to them. And they had worshipped him, rejoiced, then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord in Jerusalem. And yet somehow the reality of it didn't sink in. Because now the third time in Galilee, they doubt. And it can be the same with us. This is, I think, the whole point of the record. That, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Yes, sir. Yeah, I took that box. Yeah, I believe that. Yeah. Okay. But, but do you really? Yeah. Or do you doubt? Because, of course, if he really has risen from the dead then this demands absolutely everything from us. Now, he goes on to give the Great Commission. Verse 18, Jesus came and spoke unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Well, it could be that verses 18 and 19 are sort of back in Jerusalem or back 
in the uh, on the Mount of Olives or in Bethany or whatever, as the other Gospels seem to imply, Mark and Luke anyway. Um, or it could be that this commission was given twice, and it was given here in Galilee, and then the Lord repeated it to them. And if that is the case, uh, that it was given in Galilee, and then Mark and Luke say it was given in Jerusalem, or in the Jerusalem area, just before the Lord's ascension, then in that case, again, the Lord is repeating it twice to them, because he can see how slow they're going to be to actually obey it. So he says that all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth, therefore you go into all the nations. Well, the idea is that, yes, I've got all the power, potentially, but unless you do your thing on this earth, that's not going to work out. I have got power over the nations, but unless you tell the nations, they're not going to know. So it all depends on you doing the job. This is really quite profound. And the implication, of course, is that insofar as you do that, insofar as you go to all nations, there is all power behind you to back you up in that. I am with you always, he says, verse 20, even unto the end of the age. I think the implication could be that, yeah, now you go and tell all nations and I'll be with you in that until the end of the age. In other words, when you've told all nations, then the end of the age will come. And that is exactly what he says in the Olivet Prophecy, Matthew 24, 14, that when the gospel has gone into all the world, then shall the end come. You've got the same idea here. The end of the age is when all nations have heard. And so the quicker we take that message, and the message in its context is that Christ is risen, not a bunch of theology, not interpretation of Bible prophecy, etc., the simple truth of the resurrection of Christ and baptism and, and commitment to him, that the quicker that is taken to all nations, then the quicker the end shall come. So I think that's why there is not a calendar date for the Lord's return. There isn't a date. There are conditions. That's why in Acts 1, when they, they ask, well, you know, when are you going to come back? When are you going to reestablish the kingdom uh, of Israel? He doesn't say uh, a date, of course. Uh, he instead tells them to go and be witnesses all over the world. You know, you can understand why he does that, because the point is, well, there is no calendar date. Uh, there's a condition, and that is that you get the gospel out to everybody. So you want to know what the date is? You go preach the gospel. That's the answer. Now, if all power has been given to him, uh, this is the, the force in verse 19 of the word, therefore. Therefore, why? Because I've got all power. Therefore, you must go to all nations. And for sure, all that power will be behind you. That's why anybody who has given their life to the spreading of the gospel, somehow everything works out. I don't mean, you know, in a sort of now and again kind of sense. I mean in a radical sense. Somehow everything works out. And you sense especially his presence with you. I'm not specifically talking about what would be called missionary work, going from one country where you grew up, let's say, to another one. No, I'm talking about living the spirit of 
taking the message to all nations. And with the, the way that world society has changed in the last 50 years, you can now easily do that. You don't have to shift from where you are because there's immigration has gone haywire. There's people from all over. You know, the jungles of South America, Africa and Asia walking down the streets of the, the town where you live probably. And you can take the message to them. And of course into the, the world that, that you know. Now he says, go therefore teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, uh, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Well, this word teach, uh, teach all nations, uh, the, the idea is make disciples. Make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So then, the essence is not baptism. The essence is make disciples. The, the baptizing and the teaching them to observe all things are just subservient uh, sort of clauses to that. The essence is make disciples of all nations, and to do that you baptize and you teach them. So the, the essence is to turn people into learners of Jesus. And that, that's, uh, that's what disciple means, a, a learner, a student. Now, to be a learner or a student, a disciple of Jesus, is a bit different to teaching somebody uh, a, a package of theology, uh, a set of uh, sort of truth, as it were, of propositional truth, and then say, right, well done, you got to the right point, level now, now you get baptized, shake hands, well done, over and done. That's totally missing the point. To make someone into a student... It just shows that being a true student, having a truly open mind, a second naivety, an ability to, as it were, meet Jesus again for the first time, this is really difficult. Uh, but the whole essence is that that group of men and women who followed Jesus around Galilee in the first century, that we are to make more of them. People who are simply learning of him, loving him, devoted to him, and the teaching and the the baptizing, the teaching are, are, are just part of that process. And incidentally, he doesn't say, teach them everything and then baptize them. He says, go, uh, make disciples, baptize, teach them all things. The teaching of all things is after the baptism. And I think that should be given its due weight. The context, as I say, of the Great Commission is what's gone on earlier in the chapter, which is this continual emphasis throughout the Gospel records of go and tell other people that I am alive. Go tell my brethren, uh, tell Peter, and so forth. And so the point is that the content of this now telling the whole world is basically the Lord's resurrection. And people accept that, his death and resurrection, his coming again, People are then baptized into that, and then you teach them all things. Now that means that after baptism, there is to be some conscious follow-up. Not just for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, a couple of years, but for all the life of the people that you baptize. And I, I would emphasize that this is not limited to the disciples. This is, limited to, this is uh, appropriate to everybody who is convinced that Jesus has risen from the dead. 
we are to share that message with other people. And therefore, the command to teach and baptize is with all of us. You can't split this command up and say, oh yeah, well, I must play my part in teaching, but not in baptizing. No. The whole thing is one clause. Teach, baptize, teach your. Make disciples, baptize, teach them all things. You can't split that up and say, yes, well, of course, we should all preach. Yes, we should all obey the Great Commission, go into all the world with the good news. Oh, but it's not for me to baptize someone. No. The, pro the, the thing is all part of the same clause. <clears throat> this is particularly clear in, in the Greek. And this is what we should be doing. That you meet some guy, baptize him. Uh, immediately, all the hackles come up, no, 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 no. Yeah, we've got to get him into a church. But we're missing the point, if you say that. You're missing the point completely. Baptism is not into any human organization. It's into Jesus. And above all things, this is motivated. This is motivated by our very, very personal sense that I have met Jesus. And that good news, I cannot possibly keep to myself. I have to share it urgently, quickly, running to you, uh, because you too can share in his resurrection life. It is not simply good news that somebody rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. The good news is that you can have a part in him so that his death and his resurrection becomes yours. Thank you.